This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. So often, right here on this show, on normal nights, we talk about how divided and angry this country is. But not in times of crisis, not in nights like this. When unthinkable tragedy strikes and nothing seems fair, on this show, we like to follow the advice of the great Fred Rogers and look for the helpers. As promised, Hurricane Ian picked up and tossed huge swaths of Florida and South Carolina this week, bringing floods, power outages, and basic devastation everywhere it landed. Over the course of several surreal days, we saw whole communities crushed by a deadly combination of tropical winds, torrential rains, and heavy surf. The moment the storm receded, rescue operations began, recovery crews moved in, and worked around the clock to shore up survivors and identify victims. Mother Nature. But I literally watched my house disappear with everything in it. Mm-hmm. Right before my eyes. Biden has bent over backward to help the beleaguered state of Florida, declaring a state of emergency in some counties and distributing federal funds meant to help people immediately. We have a need to work together, DeSantis said at a briefing late Thursday, taking a far more conciliatory tone toward an administration he bitterly criticized just days earlier. I mean, as you say, Tucker, we live in a very politicized time, but you know, when people are fighting for their lives... DeSantis is also glad handling FEMA now that they've approved all his requests for aid. He's currently traveling around with the agency's director, checking out the destruction and flexing like he's Chuck Norris after a fight. But this conciliatory change of heart is only temporary. On a good day, DeSantis picks on immigrants and trans kids. Then, when disaster strikes, he adopts the assured tone of a unifier. I don't think so, pal. This week, he gave a little shout out to the Biden administration and thanked them for their help. But that's after two solid years of trashing them. He uh, ran as being a unifier, and he's basically saying to the vast majority of the country that disapproves of him uh, that they're effectively a threat to the republic. And of course, he'll gladly accept the type of federal disaster aid and assistance he rejected as wasteful when he was a member of Congress because now he needs it. If he screws up the response to this disaster, if he doesn't provide Florida with some real relief, he can kiss his presidential prospects goodbye and with luck lose the governorship to Charlie Chris as well. So look, I want nothing more than to see Floridians completely supported in their hour of need. But I'd also like to see duplicitous jackasses like Ron DeSantis voted out in November. So I'm ready for this fight. I look forward to the campaign ahead and I look forward to protecting a woman's right to choose. And I've already committed Stephanie in this race on the first day of the Christ administration. I will sign an executive order protecting a woman's right to choose statewide. Since we're already on disasters, I've been following developments overseas in Ukraine, the Baltic Sea and Russia. And seriously, folks, it's not good news. Apparently, Moscow and Fox News are working together to sell the American public on the idea that Biden and his administration are eco-terrorists. 
Friday, without any evidence, Russian President Vladimir Putin accused the United States and our allies of blowing up the undersea Nord Stream natural gas pipelines that connect Russia and Germany. As we reported earlier this week, Tucker Carlson made the same claims which the State Department is denying. It seems, you know, from most of the commentators I'm hearing, that there's basically only one country that would benefit from that, and that would be Russia, because it's a way of punishing, severely punishing Europe, without taking responsibility for it, and throwing Europe into a crisis this winter when they literally can't heat their homes. But the unexplained explosions that ruptured the two pipelines in the Baltic Sea spewed huge amounts of methane gas into the atmosphere, or as one eco-scientist put it, reckless release of greenhouse gas emissions that, if deliberate, amounts to an environmental crime. This is the sort of accident that makes fragile fossil fuel infrastructure a ticking time bomb. But the crisis has also sent European nations scrambling to find alternate sources of fuel before winter sets in. I know this is hard for you, but winter is coming. We know what's coming with it. We can't face it alone. And now, on top of the claim that the United States sabotaged his pipeline, Putin is celebrating the annexation of four Ukrainian regions near the Baltic that were invaded by Russian forces. On Thursday, Putin held a fake referendum meant to make it all look normal. But it isn't normal. Friday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken countered with a threat, saying that the United States will work with the UN to hold Russia accountable. Putin's actions are a sign he's struggling. The United States is never going to recognize this. And quite frankly, the world's not going to recognize it either. He can't seize his neighbor's territory and get away with it. It's as simple as that. America is fully prepared with our NATO allies to defend every single inch of NATO territory. In the meantime, the UN has called on member states not to recognize any altered status of Ukraine and compel Russia to withdraw its troops. Ukraine is also calling on the world to shut Russia down. And who could blame them? But all of this dangerous escalation of tensions won't just affect the region, but the world. What it all added up to, I can't say. But let's pray that asshole Putin hasn't started the next world war. All right, let's go. You've got to promise to come back to me, Steve. I promise. I'll be back. You gotta wonder. How is it possible for anyone to still believe that the 2020 election was stolen? Especially when you're part of the educated elite and married to a Supreme Court justice. I mean, how the fuck is that possible that you still believe in the big lie? I guess we'll have to ask Jeannie Thomas how she does it. How she remains so willfully ignorant in the face of so many facts to the contrary. But according to her testimony to the January 6th committee this week, nothing has changed her mind. I don't want any trouble. I take my duty as the Yoko Ono of the Supreme Court very seriously. All I want 
is a tidal wave of biblical vengeance to wash away the Biden crime family all the way to Gitmo, and then we release the Kraken. Benny Thompson, chair of the committee, told reporters after the almost five-hour private interview with Thomas that she held fast to her claim that massive voter fraud put Joe Biden in the White House. In an opening statement to the committee obtained by the New York Times, Thomas insisted that she and her husband abided by ironclad rule never to discuss cases coming before him. It is laughable for anyone who knows my husband to think I could influence his jurisprudence. But her words should not let her husband off the hook. Justice Thomas has consistently refused to recuse himself from insurrection cases, despite his wife being an insurrectionist. His credibility is shot, not that he ever had any as far as I'm concerned. The same Jenny Thomas that helped raise money and pay for buses to come on January 6th. And you actually want me to believe that Clarence did not know what his wife was doing. You've got to be outside your damn mind. So to recap, Jeannie Thomas pressured lawmakers in Arizona and Wisconsin to block the certification of Biden's win. She wrote a series of conspiracy-inspired texts to Mark Meadows on the 6th, claiming, amongst other things, that their political enemies should be rounded up and sent to Gitmo. And she's still running around the country trying to recruit crazies to subvert the next election. No, she wasn't interested in being forthcoming, in being candid. And, you know, I think it actually turned out worse than perhaps we had expected, because in part, she was kind of a shill for her husband. She was a flack, mm -hmm. saying things that we know we'll never hear from Justice Thomas because he's not going to be asked to testify. So she got to say whatever she wanted about how we never discuss cases and we really didn't discuss election fraud or, you know, and if people believe that, well, then there are any number of bridges for sale. Jeannie's lawyer, however, said her election efforts were minimal and mainstream. Poor girl was just out looking for fraud. Find a mirror, Jeannie, but quick question here. Why do you think Judge Thomas forgot to report $700,000 of income paid to Jeannie by the Heritage Foundation? Why? Because the Heritage Foundation is buying his influence by paying off his wife. He should resign, but he won't. He hates the American people too much to quit. We're all called by duty and conscience to confront extremists who put their own pursuit of power above all else. Democrats, independents, mainstream Republicans. We must be stronger, more determined, and more committed to saving American democracy. So here's an update. It sickens me to report that Judge Eileen Cannon, Trump's starry-eyed fangirl, has once again proven herself to be completely and utterly fucking incompetent. Thursday, she sided with the Trump team and said that in fact, they do not have to comply with an order from Special Master Raymond Deary. The order simply asked for proof that the documents seized from Mar-a-Lardo were somehow tampered with, lied about, or planted by the FBI. Once again, I will remind my listeners that the only reason a special master was assigned to the case was because Trump demanded it. And the result is that Trump is off the hook 
I mean, for now, anyway, the DOJ will probably appeal. Maybe your sister cares what you believe. Maybe your mother cares how you feel. Maybe your sister cares how you feel. Feel. The law doesn't give a rat's ass how you feel. But unlike Cannon, Deary's not impressed with the Trump team's courtroom theatrics and keeps demanding real evidence. Why? Because evidence is what you base a case on when you're not corrupt not conspiracy theories, and certainly not lies meant to stall things to a snail's pace. But hey, Judge Cannon, if you're listening, wake up. Lifetime appointment or not, Donald's going down and he's taking you with him. I'm the kind of cheater little homies wanna be like on my knees in the night saying prayers in the street light. And now for the main event. Today we welcome back to our show the groundbreaking congressional reporter Hugo Lowell. Lowell reports on Washington politics for The Guardian and has broken a number of high-profile stories about the January 6th committee's investigation, including several scoops pertaining to Mark Meadows, the war room at the Willard Hotel, and insider facts such as Trump ordering his advisors not to comply with January 6th committee subpoenas. Lowell regularly appears as a political analyst on MSNBC, and he's often a guest on Morning Joe, the beat with Ari Melber, Velshi, and All In with Chris Hayes. His reporting has been cited in the Washington Post, Bloomberg, and the New York Times, to name just a few. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Hugo, regarding the special master on the Mar-a-Lago case, Judge Deary, you had several tweets yesterday about Trump's lawyers saying the timeline for reviewing the documents is unrealistic. And then you attached the letter James Trusty delivered to Deary. Can you do me a favor and explain to my listeners what's going on with Trump and his lawyers? Yeah, so his lawyers are always uh, busy doing some infighting uh, and they're always disagreeing amongst each other. But uh, in the latest filing uh, yesterday night, um, they effectively said, look, we have all five vendors come back to us and say they don't want to work with us uh, with respect to digitizing the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago uh, that we want to put before the special master review for potential privilege. Um, but one thing that really stood out to me, Michael, and then see what you think, was the fact that they conceded or they admitted in the in their filing that it was 11,000 documents, not 11,000 pages. And actually, the number of pages of documents seized from Mar-a-Lago is actually 200,000. Um, and I don't think actually that was something that they necessarily wanted to make public because the fact that Trump had 200,000 pages that were seized from Mar-a-Lago, I mean, this is not something that, you know, was just casually lying around. This wasn't a small oversight. This really seems to speak to potential obstruction or potentially hiding documents at Mar-a-Lago, even more so than we might have previously thought. Well, 200,000 documents. I mean, they only walked out. Originally, I think it was like 13 boxes. And then during the raid, another 12 boxes. I mean, that seems like a lot. Um, I, I mean, does that number even make sense? 200,000, you know, pages of documents? Were these all on paper or were these on hard drives, computers? I mean, because Trump doesn't have any of that. Was it on other people's cell phones? 
Yeah, I mean, it's not clear. I mean, all we know is what Trump uh, has admitted in in filings, and it doesn't seem like they wanted to admit this. I mean, they were they basically raised the two hundred thousand number kind of begrudgingly uh, because they were trying to argue that well, you know, the vendors didn't want to work with us because there were two hundred thousand documents here, and they didn't think they claimed that the. Uh, the vendors thought the timeline to digitize these records was unrealistic. Although the the DOJ has since come back and said, well, actually, we don't think it's unrealistic at all. And we're pretty confident. And they told the judge this, we're pretty confident that we can find a vendor in a day. So it's not quite clear the circumstances surrounding it. But the fact that the number of supposed pages of documents uh, and documents seized from Mar-a-Lago has jumped to that extent, I think, is uh, really interesting. It's really not a big number. And I'm speaking from personal experience. When they came and they raided my hotel, my home, and then the law office, they took multiple, multiple cell phones. They uh, mirrored my computer in the office. They took paper files and so on. My recollection is that there were close to 10 million documents. And I was given 45 days within which to complete the review. Now, McDermott, Will, and Emery set up an entire war room that was, I don't know, um, manned by about 10-plus people, and we managed to get it done in under the 45 days. How? Because I actually devoted myself to getting it done. I myself wanted to see what information was there. 200,000 is not a lot, and I'm going to tell you why. There are a couple of things that's going on here. First, they're going to claim things like um, attorney-client privilege, right, ACP. Well, that's easy. You ask Trump to put down the names of all of the attorneys that he was working with. And then you just check to see whether or not there are documents from those individuals. Now, the other, which will probably be a little bit more difficult, is the executive privilege claim. He doesn't get executive privilege over documents that are stolen. That's the the, uh, fraud crime exception rule or the crime fraud exception rule. What he's doing doesn't make sense. And I don't understand what his lawyers are now trying to say here. It's just, again, it doesn't make sense. He's just trying to do what I have been saying since day number one as part of the Trump playbook. Delay, delay, delay. Because every day that he delays, he thinks in his mind that he's winning. Yeah, and I should just clarify to say when I said, you know, I thought the jump in number from 11,000 to 200,000 was interesting is it's interesting in terms of how much they actually pulled out of Mar-a-Lago. And I agree with you that a vendor quite easily could work through 200,000 uh, pages. I mean, I, I don't know, have these lawyers never done sort of corporate litigation where they have to, you know, digitize all these records? So their kind of claims are kind of, uh, kind of bizarre. But I agree with you also on the fact that this comes down to what Trump intended from the start, right? The whole notion of having a special master was because he thought, you know, this would, this would be the perfect way to try and undercut the criminal investigation into him. And in some ways, I think, and maybe you disagree, Mike, we'll see what you think. I think he's actually um, screwed this up a little bit because the 11th Circuit has ruled that the DOJ would get access to the 100 or so 
uh, classified documents or documents marked classified, and they could use that in their ongoing criminal investigation. So the most potent of the criminal charges, the willful retention of national defense information, that investigation is continuing. And what Trump's really quibbling over is these kind of 11,000 documents that probably amount to some sort of presidential record or federal record um, that isn't the most uh, important or the most significant criminal charge facing him. So in some ways, he's buying himself more time. But I also think it's uh, significant that the DOJ is moving forward with their most serious of uh, line of inquiry in their criminal investigation. You kind of um, answered the question that I wanted to follow that up with, which is, you know, because you're following these developments in the Mar-a-Lago, you know, Judge Deary special master drama very closely. I follow you, obviously, on your uh on your Twitter account, uh, as well as your um, other social media platforms that you play on. If you'll do me the favor, let's just really, you know, let's dive deep into this one. How do you think that Judge Deary is handling the case so far? You know, and do you think that the 11th Circuit carve out of the classified document sort of makes the things that he's doing or saying the point largely moot? Here's a good question. I, I, you know, I'll start with Judge Deary. I was in Brooklyn for the status conference when uh, Trump's lawyers met with the DOJ and the special master when they were trying to figure out the timeline for this review. And I think at that point, Judge Deary was very clear that he would be a no-nonsense special master. And I think you know the Trump lawyers were a little bit aggrieved by this because you know they had hoped that they could try and manipulate the special master in the way that uh, perhaps they might have been able to manipulate to some degree Judge Cannon, right? They were they made all these assertions in court filings before Judge Cannon down in Florida saying, look, we need these documents. You know, it's a, we're bringing this Fourth Amendment claim. And re- I mean, it really wasn't. It was more of a Rule 41 motion. Um, but even then it was bizarre because he hasn't been indicted. So it's not exactly clear what he wanted. He didn't, you know, he didn't even submit a, a request for an injunction. And so, um, you know, Judge Deary, the special master in New York, made it very clear that he wasn't going to be, you know, bandied about by these Trump lawyers. And he was like, look, for instance, if you're not going to give me evidence that certain documents are declassified, as Trump is actually claiming them to be, then I'm going to take the government side and I'm going to say that they are classified and that they don't need to be reviewed by you guys necessarily. And so I think that was just one of many examples that shows how Judge Deary is proceeding with this. You know, he wants to move ahead expeditiously and he wants to move ahead in a way that is not kind of playing to the Trump lawyers' arguments to try and delay this further. So, so I think, you know, those are really kind of interesting elements as to how Judge Jerry is proceeding with this review. Well, that's, that's also interesting. And you raised an interesting point, which is about the Trump legal team or right now the lack thereof. Right. Because, you know, I mean, right now, for example, this new three million dollar attorney, Chris Kreis, um, in the Mar-a-Lago case is already being sidelined. And there's dozens of reports, you know, um, about this specific topic that they claim that he's been sidelined. And everybody, of course, wants to know why. Now, if I had to make an educated guess based upon, obviously, my tenure, my more than a decade of working by this guy's side, he's asking him to do things that Chris Kyes already knows is improper, 
potentially illegal, the same way that he now threw Bob under the bus, the same way he threw Rudy Colludi Giuliani under the bus, the same way he threw me under the bus. He doesn't care if you lose your law license. He doesn't care about telling the truth. So I think that what's happened is Kai's probably told him, I can't do that. All right. That's not proper. That's a lie. That's going to get us all in big trouble. And so for the moment, don't forget, Kai's was smart. He took the money up front, right? As opposed to Kaludi that thought he was making a quarter of a million dollars a day. Um, this is what I think is probably going on. What's your, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that's a smart take. I mean, um, certainly Chris Kai's that you was in a difficult position, right? He was uh, co-leading this defense team in the special master case. And presumably at some point uh, they had to go to Trump and say, look, the special master is asking us to do two things, which Judge Cannon, by the way, in the last hour or so has, has uh, since screwed up. But at the time, there, there certainly must have been a conversation about how Judge Deary was asking Trump to say definitively under oath. Firstly, did you actually declassify certain documents, supposedly even in your sleep, as you are claiming? And second of all, is it actually true, and will you attest to this under oath, that the FBI planted evidence, you know, planted uh, highly sensitive government documents at Mar-a-Lago, and they are manufacturing evidence against you? And to make those kinds of uh, assertions that Trump has been making under oath would have been a very different game. You know, Michael, you and I kind of talk all the time about how you have to tell the truth. You can't lie in court filings because that's really serious for these lawyers. And, you know, they would lose their law license if that if that turned out to be what was going on. And so I'm sure that Chris Kyes had to have that kind of conversation with Trump. And I'm sure that didn't please Trump. The one thing I do know, though, also is that this legal team has begun to fray at the edges. There is not really a coherent strategy uh, among the lawyers, and there is more infighting on this legal team than kind of previous legal teams representing Trump. And it might be because of high stakes it is, but there is certainly now a divide. Certainly, I'm told Jim Trustee and Lindsey Halligan are on one side. Chris Kyes was on another side. Evan Corcoran was very quiet doing his own thing. So you now have four lawyers who aren't really gelling together. And one, I think, also has to wonder whether there was some sort of backstabbing going on. There was some Game of Thrones. Someone like Jim Trusty wanting to get rid of Chris Kyers. I've also heard that from my sources. Okay. You know, which the whole thing has just been a clusterfuck since the very beginning, right? I mean, you know, if I was in that team, I'll tell you, and it's not the right way to do it, um, but what I'm certain Trump would have been saying is, this is what I want you guys to do. All right? As the orange-faced ass clown who doesn't care about lawyers or their law degrees or what happens to them, what he would have or should have done had he not lost his mind after this raid would have been to shut the fuck up, right? And then later claim, right, if you think about it, that he didn't pack up the stuff. It was done for him. I don't know what was in those boxes, right? This is now we all know that that's a lie, especially considering he's already told us that he's allowed to declassify stuff just by thinking it back to the old Jedi mind trick of Donald, right? Everything was declassified. Remember what he did. First, I don't know about the papers. Then I do. Then I'm entitled to have them. Then I'm not entitled. Then if they 
If I wasn't entitled because they're classified, I already declassified. Just ask everybody around me. They heard me say it. When everybody said, no, we never heard you say it, jerk off, right? Then all of a sudden, it's like, well, I'm the president. I can just, I can just think it. I mean, these are the crazy things um, that the guy is really you know, trying to come up with. This is why I believe that there's so much infighting that's going on. You're right. There is no strategy. There's no strategy because every time that they probably come up with a strategy, Trump opens up his mouth and he says something that makes it more difficult within which to protect him. Now, again, he could have taken the fifth in terms of whether he did or he didn't pack the boxes. You know, he could say whatever he wants on his truth social. He could say whatever he wants in the media. You just can't say it in court. And you can't say it in a court filing. And definitively, the lawyers can't say it either on behalf of their client. Yeah. And, and look, I will say, you know, that Hannity interview that that Trump did when he sat down and said, you know, I, I think I can declassify stuff in my sleep. I mean, that's just patently absurd. I mean, then we get into the realm of, well, if he's dreaming and he thinks of something in his dream, you know, is, is a certain document declassified? Then? Well, I'm not so sure. Hugo, I don't think, Hugo, I don't think during that interview that he said while he was dreaming. What he said was, if I'm th- I can think it and therefore it becomes declassified. Right, right, right. Even if I was just thinking it. That you know, that means either while he's awake or while he's asleep. <laughs> he could just think the declassification. Right. And and, and like it's it's so it's it's so absurd in, in so many different ways that it kind of gives rise to I mean, who knows who knows what other ways, you know, you could potentially declassify something. I mean, it's it's just so so much nonsense in that interview. That I think you know the former U.S. attorneys that I spoke to afterwards, the former members of um, the, the the counterintelligence and export section at Maine Justice, they were like, you know, this is all gold 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 dust for potential prosecutors. I mean, we would all use this as evidence in a case. Um, so you know that is obviously bad news, and there is an element here, I'm sure, that every time he does open his mouth, he upends whatever strategy they did have, and you know when. The Trump lawyers were in court with the special master and the special master pulled them up on this claim that, you know, the FBI might have planted something. Um, One of their responses were like, look, we can't really and we don't want to talk about what you're referring to because these are potential arguments we have to address if Trump gets indicted. And we actually have to file a motion to dismiss or a Rule 41 motion. You know, these are potential defenses we might have to use if Trump actually gets charged. And we don't want to telegraph that in advance. And I think that was a really significant moment that seemed to suggest how difficult a time that the Trump lawyers were having in trying to defend their client. What makes it more atrocious in terms of his behavior is the fact that he could even put out there a statement that the FBI potentially planted this information in his office and so on. I mean, it's just a terrible thing for him to say because what he's trying to do is to is to make himself the victim. Donald always wants to play the victim, despite the fact he's really the bully in the in the backyard. And as the victim, now he's able to rile up his base. The FBI planted. If I tell you the number of people, and I'm not talking about uneducated, you know, um, individuals or stupid individuals. I'm talking about significant individuals who are highly successful, 
who believe that there's a possibility that Trump may be right, that the administration, that the Department of Justice is so determined to lock his ass up and his family's ass up and everybody that was close to him, that they're even willing to plant evidence in his, in his Mar-a-Lago office against him by planting top secret nuclear information. This is a very dangerous thing to do. You know, whether you like the FBI or you don't, whether or not you think that the DOJ has issues, like I do. My upcoming book, I talk about it ad nauseum. I talk about the weaponization of the Justice Department by Donald Trump and his acolytes to go after his critics, hence the book called Revenge. That's not what's going on here. But Trump uses the paranoia that he knows exists out there as a means to rile up his base in hopes that they do exactly what others in his inner circle have said that they would do. That if they go after Trump, there will be a war. And let's just get back to the facts of the matter for a minute, right? Because, you know, the search of Mar-a-Lago was based on a court-approved search warrant. The FBI found probable cause. They made that clear to the judge in advance of the search, and the judge signed off on it. And the fact that the judge signed off on it, knowing full well that this was a search of the home of a former president, I'm sure the judge did not take that decision lightly. And so when you look at and when you look at the fact trail and how Trump at every turn stymied or tried to stop the Justice Department from regaining access to these documents. I mean, and, you know, the Justice Department has said this separately in court findings, you know, these are highly sensitive documents marked classified. There is no way in hell there could ever be an executive privilege claim or that these documents could become personal documents. You know, these are government documents through and through. The moment they're classified, they're a federal record. And so, you know, that I think underpins how absurd all of Trump's arguments are, and for him to claim that, you know, these this, there was evidence being manufactured against him. Although you are right, you know, he does go out and makes this play to his supporters, and it sticks. I mean, we think, based on some of the numbers and fundraising numbers that he's been posting, that August was one of the best months for him this year in terms of fundraising after that search happened. And certainly that's being reflected in the kind of spending that the Save America PAC is doing. And very shortly, he's well, he's just opened or launched a new PAC called MAGA Inc. that he's going to start funneling money through from the Save America PAC to support his endorsed candidates in congressional races. And they're floating around in money. This was a very, very good quarter for them. And it all came off the back of Trump's kind of real lies about the FBI searching his home. Dangerous lies. I mean, they're just dangerous, dangerous lies. Then let me let me follow up and ask you this. What's next for Judge Eileen Cannon? Are we about done with her? I mean, isn't there some ethics review that should be or is coming her way? Because if there isn't, like I said, there definitely should be. But if you would, break down how and why she's still on this case and what happened to the original judge in the Mar-a-Lago case. I'm referring to Judge Reinhardt. 
Yeah, look, Trump went uh, judge shopping, right? So he decided that the magistrate judge who signed off on the search warrant that allowed the FBI to go into Mar-a-Lago and search these documents was not the kind of judge he wanted overseeing his special master case. And so he looked around Florida and he was like, hmm, who did I appoint in the post-election period between November and when uh, I was uh, out of the White House in January? And he looked around and he found Judge Aileen Cannon. She's a Trump appointee she's very conservative and he was like you know this is the perfect judge to whom i'm going to bring this case and this was an issue at the time if you remember because even judge cannon was like well why do i have jurisdiction to look at this case you know this is all being done by judge reinhardt in west palm beach anyway she took on the case even though it's outside of her jurisdiction and she's been handing down these rulings that kind of was so extraordinary and gave so much deference to trump as a former president that even the 11th circuit and you know trump drew a panel of three judges, two of whom he appointed. Even the the highly conservative 11th Circuit decided that Judge Cannon's rulings were so beyond the pale and so not rooted in kind of case law and jurisprudence that they really slapped down, you know, parts of her order. And when they gave the DOJ access to, or, you know, gave them back access to the 100 or so classified documents because DOJ was so appalled at how the case was going and how Judge Cannon was ruling, they really addressed some of the arguments and some of the basis on which Judge Cannon was making her decisions. And they really slapped it down. And I think that was as big as a rebuke as you're going to get. I don't know uh, where this goes next. I mean, Judge Cannon's going to be overseeing this case now, at least until through mid-December, which is now the final deadline for the special master review. She, you know, within the last hour, actually just extended that deadline to, I think it's December 16, the final, final date, the review has to be completed. And so we're going to see a lot more of her. And remember, after all of this is done and the special master gives his recommendations about potential privilege protections to Judge Cannon, Trump can still appeal. And so let's see where that goes. Oh, and you know that he's going to. You know why? Because the appeal is a delay, delay, delay tactic. My favorite line came out of actually the Daily Beast when they wrote in their headline, Judge Cannon's latest Mar-a-Lago ruling just got bench slapped. I thought it was a very cute, you know, play on words um, in the fact that, the you know, the Circuit Court of Appeals, as they wrote, took a sledgehammer to the Trump-appointed judge's misreading of the law. That's a hell of a statement to say about a federal court judge. And what it does is something I talk about in the book. I have a fundamental problem, and I think everybody should as well, that these federal court judges have lifetime appointments. And I feel exactly the same way when it comes to the Supreme Court. You know, you now have... I don't know, what is it, four or five individuals on that Supreme Court that are in their, you know, early 50s. This is a real problem because if any of them behave in the same manner that Judge Cannon did, right, like um, an Amy Comey Barrett, for example, this is a real problem for American democracy. It's a real problem for our constitutional rights because we've already seen, you know, their behavior and uh, their actions in the overturning of Roe. Yeah, and, and the bench slapping you're referring to, it really was pretty aggressive, pretty vehement, and a very strong rebuke of how Judge Cannon was interpreting the law on a number of issues from like the Ritchie factors to the possessory interest uh, of, of the of these documents with respect to a Fourth Amendment claim. And I think that's, you know, the easiest for kind of people to wrap their heads around, right? There is the 
the, the thing that this all turns on to some degree is the possessory interest that Trump supposedly has in some of these documents. He's trying to get some of these documents returned to him. He wants to, you know, go through these documents because he thinks there's potential privilege arguments, even though he hasn't actually articulated what potential privilege there may be and also fails to do so before the special master. But the whole possessory interest thing is interesting because how could Trump as a former president have any possessory interest in executive branch documents that belong to the government and have classified markings on them and a rise to the standard of national defense information. There is no universe in which potential or significant national defense information could ever be in the possessory interest of an individual, much less someone like Trump. So forgetting whether it's Trump, you nailed you nailed it on it. Nobody is supposed to possess them. They belong to the National Archives and under the Presidential Records Act should have been turned over properly. Okay, let's say the very first time he was asked, he chose not to turn them over. Then he turns around and he lies and he has a lawyer lie and say there's no more there. And as you stated before, they obviously had significant information within which to get the, uh, the search warrant executed. They now have it in their possession. I just don't understand. I really, truly don't. How he could be calling some executive privilege over these documents. And that's why his lawyers are infighting. Because you have some that are so entrenched now into this cult that I was once in. And I know, I know that feeling. They're so entrenched with trying to make him happy that, they, that they're willing to lie or try to push somebody to lie. That would benefit Donald. The problem is this guy, Chris Kais, he's not stupid. He's actually a very, very competent attorney. Um, He's not willing to lose his law license and go down in history as like what Donald is, a fucking ass clown. I mean, I don't understand what I don't understand the judges. I don't understand why we're allowing Donald to control the conversation, to control the case. Nobody else gets to control the case except for him. These delay tactics, the way that he says stupid shit and everybody says, oh, oh, okay, um, you know, let's slow it down. Let's give him now till December 23rd, I think it is, right? Something December 16, like that. by mid-December, um, yeah. Oh, 16. Yeah. yeah, I mean, nobody else has this ability to do it. And I think enough is enough. And I finally, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. And I think everybody's kind of done with all of this. Every day it's another illegal act that he's being admonished for, but he's not holding, you know, he's just not being held accountable. And that's a real problem for a lot of people, obviously myself included. But then let me ask you this. If you were to speculate, how do you think the Mar-a-Lago case will ultimately end? Do you think Trump will ultimately be prosecuted for it? And if he's not, then the rule of law might as well be tossed into the garbage. How do you see things going for Trump in the end? I think this is the case that poses the most legal risk. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, the January 6th investigation continues over at Maine Justice. There's the Georgia uh, state investigation into the fake elector scheme. But if you're Attorney General Merrick Garland and you had these three cases before you, you know that you probably have to indict Trump in some way or another because that's otherwise, otherwise that's going to be your legacy. It's going to be the Attorney General who didn't indict Trump uh, despite the fact that he appears to have violated several several uh, uh, you know laws here 
Um, and I think the most clear cut out of all of these cases is the documents case. Um, you know, they're investigating three lines of inquiry here. They're investigating the, the potential willful retention of national defense information uh, under the Espionage Act. They're also investigating obstruction of justice by him or his lawyers. And they're also investigating more generally the illegal uh, retention of government documents. Now, I think if there's a charge that comes out of this, the most likely and the potentially the easiest is probably going to be the obstruction charge, that one in the middle. Because if we go back to that subpoena, the one uh, that was issued, I believe, May 25 and was responded to on June 3rd, Trump, to some degree, appears to have had some role in determining which documents he was going to give back to the Justice Department, except the subpoena requested right. all of the documents uh, that that were kind of were, were more pacified. And he clearly didn't comply with that subpoena. It's not exactly clear who has the legal liability here. It doesn't seem to be the lawyers at the moment. Um, but there is some legal liability there because he clearly did not comply with the subpoena. I mean, it's cut and dry. You either answer it to the full extent or you don't. And in this case, he doesn't. I think the 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 tangential question is whether the Justice Department prosecutes both the, just the obstruction case by itself or whether they attach the national defense information uh, charge to that and they charge both of them at the same time and potentially the third one as well. But I think the, the Mar-a-Lago case poses the most risk to Trump for a potential prosecution. Yeah, I've been known to say the same exact thing when I was doing my rounds last week on the various different news stations. One of the things even um, is obviously put out there was the fact that they knew that he had documents. He claimed that he didn't. Then they had the subpoena. Remember, this, this didn't just come out of nowhere. First, they asked for the documents. He said he didn't have. They sued him. And then he lost. Trump lost, so he went to the appellate court. Appellate court affirmed the lower court's decision. He then took it to uh, the Supreme Court. He lost then to, and then they ended up getting some documents. Now that they had the raid, they found at least one full box of financial documents as well. And now this is, by the way, not, I'm not referring to the January 6th. I'm referring to the modus operandi of Donald Trump. This is in Tish James's 220 plus uh, page lawsuit against the Trump organization for financial documents. The reason I bring this in is because it's exactly parallel to his behavior. His behavior with the Tish James investigation, with the district attorney investigation, with the January 6th investigation, with everything is, fuck you. I'm going to do what I want. I can do what I want. I'm the king. I'm the, I'm the monarch. I'm the ruler. Um, that's the problem. And that's why, again, going back to the lawyers, everybody's scrambling because nobody knows what he's going to do or say next. You have no idea. It's all a knee-jerk reaction. And in his mind, he thinks whatever it is, he's entitled to do it. Yeah, and at this point, one has to wonder if, Trump would have been better off actually just settling with Tish James early, early on in this investigation before she really got her hands on a lot of the materials, especially about how he provided kind of false representations to banks and financial institutions. You know, for instance, that triplex apartment in Trump Tower, which, you know, was 11,000 square feet and he represented it to be 30,000 square feet, right? And, you know, that's an actual material misrepresentation. Your, your apartment doesn't get bigger in the summer, for instance, because it's warmer, right? It doesn't expand. It's not 
like it's not it's, it's not physics. So uh, you know that's the kind of thing that is going to give him a lot of trouble. As as you know, you know you were crucial in helping that case move forward, and you know Tish James even acknowledged that in her press conference. I was there, I heard it, um, and part of that case has now gone to the Southern District, right? There's a criminal referral here for potential bank fraud with respect to the misrepresentations of financial institutions. And I just casually looked up the uh, the maximum sentence for uh, for a successful conviction there. And that's 30 years in jail. So that's nothing to that's nothing to laugh about. And I think that's actually pretty significant as well now that you come to mention it. Yeah, and I think that that's actually the case, the referral to the IRS and to the DOJ, Southern District of New York, who, by the way, didn't indict him uh, when I called him the co-conspirator number one. In fact, we know from Berman's book that he was being pressured by the attorney general, by Bill Barr in their office to whitewash Trump's name out of anything and then just tack on other charges against Cohen. Right. But let me let's well, jump changed, back. To right. The that's January changed. We don't 6th. have Bill Barr at the DOJ anymore. And so the, the situation no. has changed. And every former U.S. attorney I've spoken to is like, you know, if, if, uh, if a U.S. attorney's office wants to reopen a case, this is exactly the kind of thing that would allow them to reopen the case and do it well when they get a referral from someone like the state AG. Yeah. And look, I, I'm, I can't argue with you. I would like to see something like that happen. I'm almost contemplating on filing a 2255 motion to reopen my case, despite the fact that I'm I'm done. Um simply because I have so much documentation now, and much of it I share in the book, talking about the weaponization of the Justice Department to be Donald's law firm, to be, you know, Donald's Ray Donovan, to be their fixer. And it's a real, it's a real problem. And it's more than just about myself. It's about what happens, again, when you have someone who doesn't want to be the president, that they actually want to be the autocrat, they want to be the ruler of the country and how they go about doing it? It's really to ensure that what happened to me never happens ever again to anyone else. So let's go back to the January 6th hearings, because the January 6th committee, I believe that their next hearing you know, maybe the committee's last. And some are saying yes, others are saying no, but I believe that it may be the committee's last. And it seems like they still have a lot more of a story to tell. I mean, it's great. It's great viewership and all, and it's interesting. But personally, I'd like to see them go after the tax. I'd like to see them go after the low-hanging fruit like they did against someone like Al Capone to just put an end to this bullshit once and for all and let the let the country start talking about more important things. What do you think the committee will focus on when they ultimately reconvene? And what's their timeline? Yeah, so I, I checked with a couple of sources on the January 6th committee, and it sounds like the next hearing will be the last investigative hearing. And that's expected to now take place. It was supposed to take place on Wednesday. It's now, been, it's now going to be rescheduled, we're told. Probably not next week, probably the week after or the week after that, but certainly before the midterms is, is what we were hearing on Capitol Hill yesterday. Uh, and then after the midterms, the idea is the committee is going to be working on its final report. Not clear whether we're going to get an interim report anymore, but we will get a final report at some point. And we should probably expect a, a hearing surrounding the release of that report that makes recommendations uh, and kind of patches the legislation to ensure that January 6th cannot happen again. Um, so I think that that's kind of the, the, the rough timeline. In terms of what they're going to focus on in the next hearing, uh, you know, the, the committee has been playing this very close to their chest. We know that they are going to feature some clips, about eight minutes in total, 
at various points in the hearing um, concerning Roger Stone. They traveled to Copenhagen, uh, well, the committee investigators traveled to Copenhagen to interview um, a Danish, a pair of Danish filmmakers who were following Roger Stone, uh, especially in the days leading up and the weeks leading up to January 6th in, the, in that kind of post-2020 election period. And they pulled some clips and they're going to use this at the hearing. And, and, and some of them show Stone declaring before the election that he intended to use kind of armed guards and the fact that there were Republican slash Trump appointed judges to try and decertify the results. And this was even before the election. And I think the case that they're trying to, they're going to try and make, you know, along with Stone and what Bannon was saying before the election was that they were part of a conspiracy or some sort of conspiracy to obstruct the certification and to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power, because they knew that even if Trump lost, they would manufacture ways to make it seem like uh, you know, the election was stolen when it really wasn't. And that was what led to January 6th. And political operatives like Stone and Bannon were directly responsible. So I think that's what we should uh, expect to see at the next year. And obviously, you remember my statement before the House Oversight Committee when, what is it, three years prior, two and a half years prior, I told you that if Donald Trump loses the election, that my fear is that there will never be a peaceful transfer of power. Why? Because I know the animals that are sitting in this inner circle. I know the big beast himself. And I know the fact that he was drunk with power. He was enjoying this presidency, not because he wanted to do good for America. When he starts saying, you know, it's all about you. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. He's so full of shit. It's all about increasing, that was what it was supposed to be about, increasing the brand value. It's increasing the opportunities that were supposed to come to the Trump organization. He never thought that all of a sudden government was going to go crazy on him, whether it was the GSA and it was the old post office or any of the golf courses or any of the other things where he was hosting functions and getting paid. I mean, he never thought that was going to happen. Why? Because a king, a narcissistic sociopath, doesn't think past their own thought. And he thought he'd be able to do whatever he wants. And obviously, we all know that that's not true. But supposedly, Jeannie Thomas has now volunteered to speak with the committee. What, if anything, do you think will come of that? Because my feeling is her interview is not likely to be televised. I don't think that they're going to do that. But... She's an election denier. She's an anti-vaxxer who supports the precinct strategy and is still pushing all of the false claims about 2020. So first, can we believe a thing that comes out of her mouth? And second, how is Judge Thomas, her husband, Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court judge, not affected by the actions of his wife? Yeah, well, well, let me just start by saying you're, you're, you you referenced the GSA, and I was actually thinking, if anything, Trump actually screwed the GSA, given what, what we now know through uh, Tish James's lawsuit. You know, he he exactly he, he misrepresented the value of of that as well in order to get a better deal uh, and then screw over the GSA. So in- to get the deal, right? To get the deal. I mean, he beat out people like Pritzkers. And if you asked him, he goes, because we're more, we are cash rich and we're financially stronger than everybody else. That was the line of bullshit. So I'm sorry, keep going, Hugo. No, no, no. And, and I just thought, I just thought that, was a, that, was a, that was a funny, funny moment, or even sad moment, frankly. But yeah, with Ginny Thomas, look, the committee has been thinking about having her in for a while. She finally sat down for an in-person interview today. It lasted around four hours. The committee has been kind of divided on, on Ginny Thomas. And I'll tell you why. 
they don't see Ginny, well, the committee does not see Ginny Thomas as a lead instigator in January 6th. They don't see her as someone who played a principal role in coordinating uh, either the violence or the kind of the political plan to uh, to obstruct the certification on January 6th. But they are concerned at the role she played in liaising between prominent Republicans who are close to Trump and people like John Eastman. When her name surfaced in emails the committee obtained uh, with, with respect to John Eastman, the, the Trump lawyer who never had his engagement letter signed, but was busy telling or misinforming Pence that he could unilaterally decertify the election at the congressional certification on January 6th. Um, when they were discussing the fake electors plan, when they were discussing other ways to overturn the election, when Ginny, Ginny Thomas was texting Mark Meadows, Trump's White House chief of staff, about ways that she could potentially help to overturn the election, that's when they got really concerned. And when they also noticed that Supreme Court Justice Karen Thomas, right, her husband, was the lone dissenter in the Trump v. Thompson case with respect to the National Archives, they really decided that she needed to be brought in for questioning because she has so many kind of links and, nodule, and, and nodules to different aspects and different elements of the January 6th story. My bet is that you also won't see parts of her testimony uh, played in a hearing or televised because the interview was voluntary. It wasn't pursuant to a subpoena. I'm told it was more of like an informal conversation. She still can't lie to Congress. That would still be a crime, but she's not compelled to answer questions uh, uh, like she would have been if she had been subpoenaed. And I think they didn't subpoena her just because she threatened to litigate and the committee was just more interested in hearing what she had to say rather than going through a court battle to, to kind of enforce a subpoena. And so I think that's where we stand. It's not clear how much, if any, cooperation she gave. Well, we know she invoked the fifth every question. We just don't know. But I'm, I think it's it's still important that the committee ticked off that box and did manage to get her to come in after all. You know, just to go back to Roger Stone, because Roger Stone is like the most idiotic cartoon character that I think exists in this entire um, scenario. I mean, everybody is a character in themselves with whether it was... Um, Stephen Miller with that shit dripping down his head, the spray on hair, or the same shit with Rudy Giuliani with uh, the shoe polish in the heat and the uh, Four Seasons landscaping in front of the mortuary. Or Next to the sex even, shop. You forgot you know, the sex shop. Right. Yeah. Or even Steve Bannon with his four shirts and his overcoat and it's 103 degrees. Everybody, uh, Donald, you know, looking nice and bright and orange as he always does. You know, almost like a um, oversized Oompa Loompa. Every one of them are sort of a, co a cartoon character. But, but what I find interesting about Roger Stone, because during my initial conversations and then the final with the Mueller team, as well as with every, you know, um, every member of these multiple congressional committees that I spoke to, they all asked me about Roger Stone specifically as it related to a conversation that Stone had with Julian Assange about in a few days there's going to be a massive dump of emails that's going to destroy the Clinton campaign. Now, I was there in the office with Donald when Roger had called, and of course the secretaries yelled out, Donald, Roger Stone, line one, he picks up, but Donald doesn't hold the telephone to his ear. He has a little box. I don't know if you've ever been to his office. Uh, he has a little box, a speaker box, old-fashioned. Probably, I think it's a radio shack. And he pushes the button and you're able to hear. And after Roger said that and he hung up, 
he turns around, he looks at me, he says, you believe Roger? So I said, look, I don't believe anything that comes out of Roger's mouth. But then again, when it comes to Stone, you never know. And then a couple of days later, what do we have? We have the dropping of a whole slew of emails that I do believe caused some serious hardships to the Clinton campaign. I, I bring that intro in simply because we also saw in that Copenhagen meeting with the Danish film directors that there's a lot of information about the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers as far as their relationship with Roger Stone. And we see now how many of them are being incarcerated, charged with some of them only like small sentences and others would appear to be quite large sentences. You think these individuals have flipped on Stone? Very good question. I mean, so we know that Roger Stone was talking to Enrique Tario and Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Proud Boys and the head of the Oath Keepers, respectively. They've both been charged with seditious conspiracy. But we know that Roger Stone spoke particularly often with Enrique Tario because he was head of the Proud Boys. And Roger Stone himself was a member of the Proud Boys. They were very, very close. Enrique had an extremely close relationship with, with Stone to the extent that Stone, he would be doing kind of like personal errands for Stone. Um, they were confidants. They spoke all the time. And core detail records partially put together by the January 6th committee to kind of document what Stone was doing both before and after January 6th, saw that a phone number associated with Stone connected to Tara's phone multiple times on either side of that capital attack. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, we know that that uh, that Enrique Tario met in the underground parking garage on January 5, uh, when he met with uh, the Oath Keepers chief, Stuart Rhodes. There's a lot of connections and there are a lot of suggestions that Stone knew ahead of time what might come down on January 6th. I don't think he, it's not clear whether he knew there'd be a capital attack. It's not clear whether he knew that, you know, the Proud Boys would be the ones storming the Capitol or at the very front of the, the mob storming the Capitol. But he seemed to suggest in conversations that were picked up on camera and also not picked up on camera that something was coming. And I think that's one of the central elements, this whole January 6th investigation, right? I mean, for, just forget Trump mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and everything for a minute. Roger Stone seems to have played a really key role, even though he denies it seems to have played a really key role in setting the groundwork for the Proud Boys to storm the Capitol and for January 6th to happen. And I think that's one of the lingering questions, whether there was a through line from Trump to Roger Stone to the Proud Boys. And if there is, well, then that would rope Roger Stone into a conspiracy involving seditious conspiracy. Along with Donald. Fine. I mean, he cannot be as the commander-in-chief, in communication, which I know he was with Roger. But again, my theory, my belief, it's not going to be the thing that puts Trump where he belongs, right? Uh, obviously, they're going to need all the documentation. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing you know, this upcoming committee hearing. I don't believe it should be the last, but I do believe that it probably will. But in, and let me ask you this then, and further... What then about Mark Meadows, senior advisor to the committee, this Denver Riggleman's book, The Breach, it came out you know, earlier this week. But he basically says is that Meadows was the hub for information on the 6th. If you would, 
Give me your take on where Mark Meadows fits into this overall plot to overthrow the 2020 election. And I also want to remind you, again, at that oversight committee hearing, when I said to Mark Meadows and Jimbo Jordan, the jerk off, when I said to them, I know what you're doing, right? I know the playbook that you're running because in part I wrote it and nothing good's going to come out of it. What's your take on Meadows? What do you think ends up happening to him? Yeah, Meadows has got some serious exposure here, right? I mean, as the White House chief of staff uh, in this kind of dysfunctional few, last few weeks of the administration, he was filtering and taking incoming messages from a whole host of people, cabinet secretaries, members of Congress, private citizens, conspiracy theorists, people like, you know, top political, uh, you know, operatives like Bannon. Um, they were all texting him with ways to overturn the election. And so he saw it all. And he was at the White House on January 6th. He was at the White House on January 5th when Trump asked Meadows to place two calls, at least two calls, one to Roger Stone, one to Mike Flynn. And Meadows even contemplated going to the Willard Hotel himself, where we all now know uh, was the site of the Trump war room where Giuliani was planning to obstruct the vote the following morning and Bannon was taping uh, his war room show. So we know Meadows was intimately involved in all this, but we don't know the extent to which he was, you know, he had a role in coordinating some of these separate plots. I mean, the way I like to think about it, you know, as a, as a, as a reporter and, and you know, someone who, who likes to look at this as a, from an investigator's, investigator's point of view, is that these are all kind of separate efforts to overturn the election and reinstall Trump in office, but they were not coordinated, uh, at least overtly by the people running them. It seems to me that if they were being coordinated, they were being coordinated by someone at a higher level. And it's not clear whether that's Meadows, it's not clear whether that's someone like Stern or Flynn or Bannon, um, but there appears to have been some coordination at a higher level. And the question remains, you know, was that someone Mark Meadows? It's crazy that we're even having this conversation. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy. Now, it appears that Trump was fairly certain that Mike Pence was not going to go along with his plans to overturn the election, but pushed him away. How important then do you think is Pence's side of the story? And do you think that that eventually Pence will be subpoenaed by either the January 6th committee or the Department of Justice to talk about the 6th and the events leading up to it? So obviously Pence was right in the middle of this as well. I mean, he was hearing from people like John Eastman who was telling him, you know, you go to Congress on the 6th and you tell Congress that you're not certifying the results of the election because you're going to have uh, alternate slates of electors from these six battleground states. Of course, that never showed up anyway, but it was true. And we now know that Pence had communicated himself and through his aides to Trump that he had no intention of doing that on January 6th. And he was communicating that as early as I think Jan January 4 or January 5. And we know that was the case because Trump then called up Bannon on January 5, the day before the Capitol attack, and complained to Bannon that Pence was not playing ball and said something along the lines of, you know, he's being really arrogant, which in Trump speak is, you know, he, you know he's not acceding to my wishes. I think Pence's account is would be very crucial. I mean, there is at least one conversation where we don't know the content of at all. This was a conversation between Trump and Pence on January 5. The aides were not in the room. It was a personal conversation between the two men, and Pence has not revealed any details of that. I don't think the committee actually subpoenas Pence. 
Um, and even if they do, I don't think Pence comes in. Pence has got his own political ambitions now, right? He's trying to run for president. If he goes and talks to what you know the MAGA crowd perceived to be the Democrat uh, Adam Schiff committee, that's the end of his presidential ambitions. I think if he does talk and does reveal elements of this, it would be to the Justice Department, because if you get subpoenaed in a criminal grand jury investigation by the Department of Justice, even a presidential candidate is going to go testify, especially if he's a witness and not a target. And in this case, he most certainly will be a witness. Yeah, he definitely will be a witness. But he also was the target by the Oath Keepers and, you know, um, the, the other, you know, the other insurrectionists right, who all decided, right. right, who wanted to hang him. I mean, so if he, look, you're right. The MAGA people will never vote for Mike Pence, no matter what he does, whether he testifies or not. Why? Because they, he did not do the bidding of their, you know, of their furor, of their Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've seen that shit, but there's like a whole bunch of flyers that are out there now calling Donald Trump the second coming of Christ. I mean, so, I mean, I don't even know. I, I'm, I'm tongue-tied when, when I hear that talking about Trump is the second coming of Christ. Holy crap. Are you for real? So none of these MAGA supporters are going to support like a second um, of the Mike Pence in it. Right. And exactly right. because he did not acquiesce to Donald's, you know, demands to overthrow the government. So now this is a this is several questions in one. So let me ask it to you this way. What do you think that the legacy of the January 6th committee will be? And. How will the public perceive them going forward as a group or as, that, or as individuals? And is it possible that without them, the DOJ's investigation into January 6th would have been even more apathetic? I think the legacy of the January 6th committee is that they've conducted a public interest investigation. And you know, they have made their findings public you know towards the end of their investigation they obviously held the hearings and i think they were significant in leaving a historical record for kind of generations of americans to come i mean this investigation has been very very tight it's been very you know probably could probably could have been more aggressive at times but they did uncover you know certain elements which which were not known uh prior to the hearings and had not been uncovered by reporters. And I think that's a very, very valuable public service. And to kind of package them all together in a series of hearings and kind of thread a coherent narrative and to put very, very complicated issues into ways that the public can understand, I think that was really important and kind of serves as a legacy for an, an, an accounting of what happened uh, on January 6th for posterity. It's, it's a really significant public service. I think um, the DOJ investigation would have been fine without the January 6th committee. I think the DOJ, you know, piggybacked off some of the January 6th committee's work in certain instances. You know, for instance, with the John Eastman emails, the the House aggressively litigated against John Eastman to get his emails. And they also won that very important concession from the California judge in that case, Judge Carter, who agreed with the uh, select committee that. Trump likely in, in entered into a criminal conspiracy to obstruct the certification with John Eastman. I think that was one of the high watermark moments for the committee and, and the investigation writ large. Uh, and so kind of DOJ were able to 
piggyback off that and kind of obtain those emails because Judge Carter said there was a crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. And that meant the DOJ could just, you know, just get those emails without having to litigate the same fight. So I think the Select Committee paved the way in many respects. But the Justice Department's also been very aggressive in its own way. I mean, they've now sent about 30, 40 subpoenas to people in Trump's inner circle. You know, that was done without, you know, really any any bearing on what the committee was doing. Um, and they've got now, by my count, at least three criminal investigations, one looking at the rally organizers, one looking at the fake elector scheme, which may have been in part, you know, through the January 6th committee's work, but also one looking at the actual violence that took place on January 6th. You know, they've been looking at this bottom up, uh, and I think they've been pretty successful in that so far. I mean, they have, you know, seditious conspiracy indictments, and that certainly didn't come from the committee's side. So, um, you know, lots of legacy for the committee, but also some good work from the Justice Department. Yes, except what we're looking for, like in the Mueller investigation, we're looking for something to come out of it. We're looking for the indictments, not the indictments against the little peons on the street. We're looking for the we're looking for the guys who really are responsible for this shit. You know, not for you know, not for the little guys who got used because they, like I was, involved in the cult of Donald J. Trump. That's not what I think people want. And as far as you know, people don't want posterity, right? They want they want action. But let me ask you this, Hugo. Because, can I kind of just say one, you know, one thing about that, Michael? I of think, course. And I think you're right. And no one at the end of the day gives a shit if John Eastman gets indicted. You know, it, this right. only matters if they can, you know, that they can indict Trump. And if they can show the American public, look, we have, you know, cognizable actual crimes against Trump and we can kind of bring charges. If they don't charge him, then Trump will be like, it was all a witch hunt. See, they never had anything on me. And they will basically hand the presidency to him in 2024. And that is the net effect of this. And I think you're exactly right. They have to charge Trump if they want this investigation to have any teeth whatsoever. And the other thing I will say, though, that the committee has that the committee has done well is they have managed to show some of the work that they have uncovered. I worry that if the DOJ never charges Trump, they will close the entire investigation and we will never know what the DOJ has uncovered and how close it might have gone to charging Trump if they indeed do not charge Trump. I totally agree with you. All right. So as the hour goes by quickly here on Maya Culpa, I have just one last question for you. It's kind of, we call it the bonus question. The polls in Pennsylvania have been wrong in the past, and there are fears that they are wrong right now. Best guess wins between Doug Mastriano and Josh Shapiro for governor. And for Senate, Fetterman or Dr. Oz. The polls say that the race is narrowing. What's your bet? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm going to have to hold fire on that because I know that MAGA Inc. is about to drop a significant amount of money into the Oz race. The problem with Oz is, you know, he's really a clown, right? I mean, he's got so many problems and Trump's own kind of advisors kind of acknowledge that. I mean, from the crudite gaffe to, you know, it's not clear where he lives, whether he lives in Pennsylvania or New Jersey or, you know, it's, it's all a shit show with with uh, Dr. Oz out there. And, um, you know, I think certainly some in people, some of the people in Trump world are whispering in Trump's ear that he really got misled uh, to endorse Dr. Oz. I think actually Fetterman might come out ahead of that, but we, I think we'll have to see uh, how much damage Trump can do with MAGA Inc. and how much money they can inject into that race because it's obviously very tight. Uh, and, and that's probably as much as I can speculate. Uh, and what about the other race? 
I think I think also I think Mastriano I think has a, has has a, has an edge in that race. I think you know I don't cover congressional campaign uh, the kind of the midterms as close as I do kind of the investigations surrounding Trump. Like that's really a full time job, uh, Michael. You know, there's so many investigations. <laughs> but uh, having spoken to my colleagues, I'm told that Mastriano is uh, is is seen by both. Democrats and, and the Trump campaign to have a slight edge of the moment. Well, Hugo, thank you so much, my friend. You and I have to speak again. There's just too much going on um, that needs explanation. And I thank you for doing that today. And I will definitely be seeing you again and speaking to you very soon. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad I had an opportunity to come on and also uh, uh, congratulate you for your role in the uh, the, the Tish James uh, lawsuit, because uh, from what I understand from her office, you played a key role in that. Well, not done with it yet, but I thank you for that. And now for today's mea culpa. This week, Perry Green, husband of the Georgia congresswoman and self-proclaimed Christian nationalist, finally gave up. Green filed for divorce after 29 years of marriage. Numerous outlets have reported on his wife's past infidelities. And in court documents, Perry calls the marriage irretrievably broken. Jointly, the estranged couple have requested privacy at this time, but the internet has been brutal. One tweet read, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who stalked Parkland shooting survivors, would like the media to respect her privacy during this difficult time. They've also requested that all divorce-related documents be put under seal, since they would negatively impact their privacy. I mean, fucking gee whiz, it would sure be terrible if that information leaked right before a big election. But don't think for a second that a little thing like divorce has stopped Little Miss Conspiracy Theory. She was out there this week going after one of her favorite punching bags, Nancy Pelosi. It makes no difference what her beef with Pelosi is all about because it all comes down to one thing, jealousy. It's got to be tough for Marjorie Taylor Greene to look at a truly powerful woman like Pelosi and not want to rip her to shreds. Because that is where Marjorie gets her strength, not in building things up, but in tearing them down. Ask me, Marjorie Taylor Greene is actually a pretty tragic character who, like most MAGA women, knows she's only valuable when she's serving the king. And I don't mean Elvis. I could go on and on about the evils of Marjorie Taylor Greene and her sick infatuation with power and predatory men like Trump. But her opponent in the Georgia Senate race is far more interesting. The 14th District is deeply Republican and pretty mean-spirited about Democrats. They'll vote for Marjorie because she represents their values. But Marcus Flowers, an army veteran and former military contractor, has people from all across the country who want to see him win. He's a black man who wears a Stetson hat like a uniform. He's affable and plain spoken. He's constantly mobbed by supporters looking for photos or an autograph. He's a people person, the model of decency, integrity, and common sense. He rejects the idea of running as opposite of Green. He's running an overtly moderate political campaign, he said. And he frames his candidacy as an extension of his call to service, with Green's activities around January 6th triggering his reaction. 
You know, as soldiers, we're taught to run toward the sound of gunfire. So, I'm looking at it in the same way. Both green and flowers have raised more than 10 million each. To date, they are running the most expensive congressional race in America so far this cycle, in a contest that should not be competitive by the laws of political physics. This district should not be competitive. But check this out. None of that 10 million is from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee because they only invest in competitive house races. And yet, hundreds of thousands of people are laying $20 bets on flowers. Because fuck Marjorie Taylor Greene, that's why. Marcus Flowers is a hell of a guy and would be great for Georgia. So will he win? Stranger things have happened. And once again, thanks for listening. Mayor Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.